David Barrett has worked in teaching, British and American government intelligence and journalism, and has been a freelance writer specialising in new religious movements and secret societies for over 20 years. He gained his PhD in sociology and religion from the London School of Economics in 2009, and his most recent book is A Brief Guide to Secret Religions, which I think we have copies of here. We have copies of it. Um, I just <laughs> that's, that's a slight reduction from the published price. Okay, there you go. So you can get them at the discount and you can sign at the end of the talk. Uh, David has actually done talks at Goldsmiths before. He did one for us, I'm trying to remember earlier, probably about seven or eight years ago. So it's very, very nice to have him back. Uh, I'll hand over to you, David. Thanks very much. Right, what do I need to press here? That looks like it. Right. Um, Chris has already said what I was going to start by saying that um, by, by trade, I'm a freelance writer, by training I'm a sociologist of religion, specialising in new religious movements, um, commonly known as sects and cults, and also in secret societies. Um, I started writing this area um, largely because I got so fed up with the amount of misinformation and disinformation's out there, um, especially from you know, front page of the Daily Mail, evil cult stole my daughter type of story. And that really, and I think, well, I know half the facts in the story are unfactual, and the other half are twisted and, and, and twined in such a way that um, it, there's very little truth in there. So I started writing books on new religions, largely to, to counter the misinformation and disinformation feed ignorance, because ignorance feeds fear. Fear feeds prejudice, prejudice feeds discrimination. Whatever area you're talking about, whether it's um, you know, racial attitudes, religious attitudes, whatever, um, that's a cycle which is, is quite well known. And I wanted to try and do something to, to just counter that and get some factual information out there. Um, over the last few decades, there's been a lot of stuff about new religions, um, a lot of negative information. Um, focusing on, on, on four of them mainly, uh, the Moonies, the Unification Church, uh, the Hare Krishna movement, um, the Children of God, who have now called the Family, and the Church of Scientology. And of, the, of those, the first three have sort of settled down, there's very little controversy about them anymore, whether the movements have grown up or, or whether people just stopped making a fuss about them, I don't know. But Church of Scientology is still really quite controversial. Um, 2001, I wrote a book called The New Believers, a whacking great 540-page book on new religions. And because I tangled with Scientology before this, I thought, OK, they have a reputation for being, being heavily litigious. And I don't want my books to slam down the moment it's published. So I got in touch with them. Um, I don't see the guy here anywhere. Uh, the head of public relations in Britain, a um, guy I've known for a long time called Graham Wilson. And I said, um, OK, let's just sort out what you're happy for me to say and what you're not, simply to avoid trouble further down the line. And we agreed that you know, I, I wouldn't talk about a couple of things, and then he'd let me get away with various other things. And um, we, we worked out a nice little arrangement, shook hands over it, over a cup of coffee somewhere in Covent Garden. And I thought that was fine, until 
just before it was published in beginning of 2001, December 2000. My publishers and I had a 13-page a letter from Peter Carter Ruckham Partners, who are the, they are the top libel lawyers in the country. They, they are libel lawyers who always attack private eye. So, yeah, I felt I was doing something right, that they were attacking me. And they, they, they were accusing me of 19 separate charges of defamation against both Elron Hubbard, who is already dead, so you can't defame him, um, and the Church of Scientology. Fortunately, my publishers had a good lawyer who had encountered this sort of thing before, and he said, well, OK, if you just change this word to that word and you know, drop that one, change this other one, and all the rest of them, we left exactly how they were. We didn't even bother replying to the <coughs> letter from the lawyers from Peter Carter wrote, and we went ahead and published, and there was no further bother. But that's the sort of thing which um, anybody who writes about Scientology has to be aware of. Um, they are well known for being, being litigious. I was hoping Simon Singh might be here um, this evening. He, he was here two weeks ago, and we were talk, talking about it. Um, he, of course, has had libel suits because of things he's written about um, alternative medicine. I'm, I'm writing about alternative religion and getting the same sort of thing back. We really need to get the libel laws sorted out so that scholars and authors and journalists can write stuff about these religions or about homeopathy or chiropractic or whatever without getting, getting hammered in the libel courts. These are the two most recent books in, in the field. Um, both, I've got them both here, um, seven quid instead of the usual nine quid. So um, yeah, special offer you can't refuse. And when I was researching this one, which is about New Age and neo-pagan and esoteric movements, I kept thinking there are all sorts of similarities here to the Church of Scientology that maybe the Church of Scientology is actually an esoteric religion. And the more I looked into it, the more similarities I found. So that's going to be part of what I'll be talking about um, later on in this talk. Which we'll be looking at a few definitions to start off with. Uh, Dianetics, which is at the heart of Scientology. That's the sort of therapeutic aspect of it. Um, science fiction, the life of the guru seeing L. Ron Hubbard as a guru in the same way as the founder of um, the Hare Krishna movement or um, Rajneesh or whoever, um, just somebody who set up a religion that's really got people going. Um, then I'll be looking at esoteric religion and finishing off with two aspects, um, brainwashing controversy, looking at it from a sociological point of view rather than a psychological point of view. And there are differences in the approach. Um, Chris and I, I think, agree broadly on what we feel about brainwashing, but there are a lot of psychologists who have a radically different viewpoint on it from mine. So I'll be touching on that. And then the Church of Scientology generally claims to have 10 million members worldwide. I'll be asking the question just how many members do they actually have? Uh, we all know what a cult is. I, I mentioned the word cult and... Um, talk about my earlier books. A cult is a fake religion that brainwashes people into joining, takes all their money, commits abuses against them, then drives them to suicide. That's your Daily Mail front page. I should have been wearing my little badge saying hated by the Daily Mail, because if I'm not, I ought to be. And so should most of us here, I think. Um, I disagree with almost every word of that. 
But that's the general conception of what a cult is. In fact, I just say this is not that. It's the simplest way of getting around that. Um, the reason I'm, I'm looking at what I mean by the word cult is um, anything in this field is really, really important to define what you mean by certain words. And I think any, any scholarly area, you need, especially where the words which have multiple meanings, just say what you mean by a word. I, I think it's Humpty Dumpty said to Alice in, um, through the looking glass, uh, when I use the word, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. So what I mean by cult is a group or concept deeply focused on a person, place, or event. Um, in the Roman Catholic Church, you have the cult of Mary, the cult of various saints, um, the cult of uh, Nock or Medjugorje or uh, Lourdes or various other places. And it just means a deep focus on that saint or that place. Um, BBC website used to have a page called Cult TV. And Cult TV included The X-Files, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, all that sort of stuff. The sort of programmes that have fanatical devotees. Um, nothing to do with religion, just people deeply devoted to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, as I'm sure most of us here were at some point. Um, that is my definition of cult. Sociologists tend to use the word new religious movement or phrase instead of cult because it's less, less highly charged, less emotionally charged, less pejorative a term than the word cult. Uh, or alternative religion, or um, some sociologists use the term novel religion. And I keep using the word religion. Um, a couple of weeks ago, somebody here in the audience uh, picked me up and said, Scientology aren't a religion, they're a uh, few unrepeatable words, uh, cult. Um, my definition of religion is a social construct encompassing beliefs and practices which enable people individually and collectively to make sense of the great questions of life and death. Um, that's as good a definition as any other you'll find of religion. Um, if you have too broad a definition, you can include football fans as a religion. If you have too narrow a religion, you'll ex exclude Buddhism and quite a lot of other religions. That's a generally middle-of-the-road definition, uh, concentrating on various factors, beliefs and practices, and the functionality of religion. What, what religion is for, what people use it for. Um, what's the difference between a cult and a religion? Most people say about a million members. <laughs> um, that's something I'll be getting onto right at the end, the, the membership um, of Scientology. Um, the other definition of, of a cult that I like is a cult is a religion I don't like. That's fair enough. So um, that's the, the sort of ideas where I'm coming from in both what a cult is and is not, new religious movement, and generally what a religion is. L. Ron Hubbard, the founder, the guru, the prophet, the science fiction writer who created the religion. Um, 1950, he published a book called Dianetics the modern science of mental health. Right from the beginning, he's calling it a science. And um, Scientology uses terms like science and technology. Um, all of their, their procedures, all of their customs, their practices, are known as technology or tech. 
And they, this is really important to them, that they, they treat it as a process, as a technology, as a system for, um, could just say, mental clarity in many ways. Um, it's supposed to be scientific sounding. Whether that makes it scientific or not is something um, is debatable. Science, the Church of Scientology reckoned that Hubbard created Dianetics out of nowhere, that he came up with this brilliant idea after years of uh, thinking, philosophizing, and trying to up a whole system of mental health. In fact, he borrowed aspects of it from various places. Um, some people see echoes of Buddhism in it, I, I don't myself. He borrowed um, some concepts from Sigmund Freud, the, the idea of the unconscious from Freud. And he borrowed from um, general semantics, which was a system founded by Alfred Korzybski in the 1920s, which basically deals with the, the, the importance of language and, and how we react to words. Like, for example, the word cult. That I say cult, you know, evil, daughters, uh, evil cult stole my daughter, let's get it the right way around, uh, rather than evil daughter stole my cult. Um, immediately you know, you know you have a reaction to the word cult. Um, you have a reaction to um, Boris, David Cameron, Ken Livingston. You have reactions to words, to names, to people, to places. And the idea of Dianetics, to some extent, from general semantics, is try and get rid of the push-button reaction to words and gestures and events so that when something happens or when you hear something, you choose how you're going to react to it. You don't just get the push-button response. To illustrate what I mean, I don't know how many people saw that panorama back in 2007. Um, John Sweeney, panorama reporter, doing a piece on Scientology, and basically they wound him up. And they got him to the point where he exploded. He called it the exploding tomato, and he ranted and raved and screamed at them to shut up and he was right and they were trying to um, stop them speaking and all the rest of it. Um, he later apologised as any journalist in that situation would have to do to apologise for that rant which was all caught on film. But three or four years later he did a second panorama with one of the two people from Church of Scientology who had been there who he was ranting at, who he exploded at. A guy called Mike Rinder, who was head of public relations for the, the entire Church of Scientology worldwide. And shortly after this incident, in 2007, Mike Rinder left the church. Three years later, he came back to another panorama with John Sweeney. And he said, you know, when you did that, when you exploded as a tomato, exploding tomato, we set you up to do that. We pushed the buttons. We knew. If we said this, if we said that, if we stopped you doing this, just our posture, the way we looked at you, the way we moved, the way we stood, the way we wouldn't let you do this and we wouldn't let you... We set you up and we knew that you were going to do this. And that's an aggressive way of using language and using posture, which Scientology picks up from um, general semantics in some ways. Um, Neurolinguistic programming has similar sort of techniques which can be used aggressively, they should be used, obviously, benignly, to, to use language in such a way that you can 
gets the effect that you want from the language that you're using. So that's where it comes from. But what is it? Uh, Dianetics at the heart of, of Scientology. And that is supposed to be this lady's time track. All the events in her life, going back to her birth, and in fact before her birth and her previous lives as well. Uh, Church of Scientology believes in past lives. And the idea of it is that um, I mentioned Freud's unconscious. Hubbard came up with the idea of the reactive mind. The part of your mind which reacts without thought. Cindy says something, Cindy does something, you react without even thinking about it. And the reactive mind, he said, stores what he called engrams, pictures, snapshots of every event in your life. Not just pictorially, but sound, scent, images, emotions, the lot. Um, and this can come back and get you years later and have an effect on you. Um, simple example. Imagine you're in a seaside town. Um, you can hear the seagulls. It's a nice hot sunny day. You can hear the seagulls. You can smell freshly baked bread from a bakery. Um, you're about to cross the road and a blue car overtakes a red bus and just catches you and you fall. And you fall on your side. You hurt your, your, your arm and your leg. You might black out for a minute or two. As you're falling, you hear people saying, he's falling, he's going down, he's collapsing. And then you come around, and you're okay, you know, you're a bit dizzy, but you're fine. But years later, according to this theory, it could be a bright sunny day, or you could hear seagulls, or you could smell freshly baked bread, or you could see a blue car on a red bus, and instantly you're taken back to that moment when you were knocked down. And you feel, again, you feel the pain in your arm and your leg where you fell. But crucially, you hear the words... He's falling, he's, he's being knocked down, he's going down. And these are negative words that you're hearing, and they affect the way that you react to, to your life. You feel that you're, you're not good enough, you feel you're falling, you're, you're being depressed. And that sort of emotional, negative aspect, reaction, coming from past events, is what Dianetics is all about. The idea is you sit connected to two tin cans and an e-meter. I'll come back to that in a second. And you're with an auditor. Auditor simply means a listener. And they will listen to you and they will guide you as you go back through your time track, through your life, until you find the events which trigger those negative thoughts today. And the idea is you deal with these one by one over probably many months, maybe even years. And you go back through your life, you identify all those crucial points in your life when something happened, which is now echoing forward into the future, into today, and having a negative effects on you. And you, what you, you, you re remove the charge, the negative charge from those events, so that, yes, I was knocked down by a car, um, but it doesn't affect me anymore. You've taken away <laughs> that negative charge. And when you've gone back through the whole of your life, right through your time track and removed the negative charge from every one of those events. You've cleared all of them. That's what Scientologists mean by going clear. And you've basically <coughs> emptied your reactive mind of all this negative crap which is pulling you down and 
making you a more dispirited person. And at that point, you should be able to really launch forward as a new man um, in terms which, which can only be described as superman. And we'll see why in a second. Um, one obvious question is, does this work? Does Dianetics work? And the answer is yes. It works in exactly the same way as any other form of counselling or therapy works. But basically, you're, you're looking at the problems that you've had in your life. You're talking them through with somebody, and you feel better for doing that. That's it. That's basically what most therapy and most counselling and Dianetics is all about with different labels, different structures. But you've got a trained, in one way or another, a trained professional there who's helping you go through this. So, and you're in an artificial situation. And it all makes it seem professional and therapeutic. And even just being in that situation probably helps you feel better. It's just a form of therapy, one amongst many. Um, going clear, when you've cleared all of your engrams, Hubbard reckons that when you go clear, you will have better health, better eyesight and hearing. You'll be able to deal with any psychosomatic illness. You'll have greatly increased intelligence and memory. And you will also become the optimum man or woman, i.e. Superman. And he says a clear, for instance, has complete recall of everything which has ever happened to him or anything he's ever studied. He does mental computations, such as those of chess, for example, which a normal person would do in half an hour, in 10 or 15 seconds. So he, he's basically saying that you become a superman. Hugely attractive. Let's all go for it. Um, the odd thing is, when I was researching um, the Secret Religions book, I noticed very similar claims amongst some of the esoteric movements that I was studying. Um, there's one movement called Builders of the Addison, an American offshoot from the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which uh, you may know was the biggest, probably the most important occult group in Britain at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. Builders of the Addison, an American offshoot, and they say of their uh, teachings and their, their, um, their own sort of programming that... Um, there'll be a, a series of subtle but important changes in your inner world, not least of which is an expansion of your conscious awareness. Even a slight increase in this area has a remarkable effect on your mental and emotional cap capacities. Your intelligence increases. You become more aware of your motivations. You become more observant, which improves your memory. Your ability to anticipate future effects or present causes is enhanced, improving your discrimination and making choices. Objectivity is increased, aiding the ability to think more logically and clearly, which increases control over your environment and helps you define your goals. Now, that's an esoteric movement talking about the benefits of their training. It could have been written by Aaron Hubbard about Dianetics. It's almost exactly the same sort of benefits you get from each system. Um, the idea of the Superman very much... Um, very attractive, not just to, to people like John Travolta and, and Tom Cruise and other top Scientologists. Priscilla Presley. Hmm? And Priscilla Presley. And Priscilla Presley, and, and many others, thank you. Um, but also, success-orientated America loves this sort of thing. 
and so originally science fiction fans. And I mentioned that Hubbard was a science fiction writer. We'll be looking at that in a second. Um, but a couple of people who wrote the or edited the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction some years ago said that Hubbard's early science fiction novels often came to haunt his readership. And his science fiction, with its canny utilisation of Superman protagonists, came to tantalise them with visions of transcendental power. And that's to some extent what Dianetics and Scientology does with the concept of Superman. That it gives you this wonderful thing to aim for, this, this wonderfully transcendent uh, goal to head for. Um, it's also both Scientologists and um, the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction describe it as a technology of self-improvement, a set of instructions to follow in order to liberate and transcend the power within one. And technology, Scientology talks about tech all the time, and uh, that's how they want it to be seen, as a process of technology. Um, in fact, Hubbard said, or sorry, a book called Descri A Description of Scientology Religion says, the emphasis in Scientology is on the application of exact methodologies in order to bring about change in the conditions of an individual's life. The e -meter. It's basically a glorified polygraph, a lie detector. Um, Church of Scientology say differently, fair enough. But what it does, it measures skin conductivity. The amount of sweat in your hands. Um, when you're holding the two tin cans, if you want to make your, the needle swing across, it's quite easy to do, just grip the cans a little bit harder. Um, if you want to make the needle swing back, just relax. If you think very gentle, benign thoughts, the needle will swing over to the left, just nice and calmly there. If you think aggressive thoughts, it'll swing right over and bang against that side. And it's very, very easy to do this. I've, I've done it several times with an e-meter. Um, just to, to make it do what you want by the type of thoughts you're having, which automatically make you grip, make you tense more, in much the same way as, as a polygraph will do. But the Church of Scientology says that uh, this beast, the E-meter, um, what to do? It measures the spiritual state or change of state of a person. And it's of enormous benefit to the auditor, the person doing the, um, helping the um, dynamic session. Uh, enormous benefit in helping the pre-clear locate areas to be handled. The reactive mind's hidden nature requires utilisation of a device capable of registering its effects, a function the e-meter does accurately. Um, the church also says that the, the e-meter measures the movement of mental masses. And the mental image pictures, the, the engrams that you have, that picture of the, the blue car overtaking the red bus and hitting me, and the whole of that little incident, there's some story in here somewhere, that image, that mental picture, they have weight and mass. And this piece will measure them. Um, they don't provide any scientific evidence of this, but... Um, sorry? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, OK. <laughs> sorry, I thought you were going to ask me something. Um, they don't provide any, any scientific evidence of this um, out with the church. Um, but that's part of the belief that the e-meter 
helps them to diagnose problems with people, to track down memories which then need to be dealt with. Um, some years back, a psychologist called Dr. Christopher Evans wrote a book called Cults of Unreason. And he talked about black box technology. Not just in Scientology, but other religions like um, the Ethereal Society, which is um, a flying saucer movement. They have something called a prayer battery where believers store their prayers um, in a black box, which can then store all this prayer energy. And then when there's need of a huge amount of prayer, you take this box and you point it in the direction where it's needed, and all the stored prayer energy will come flooding out and have a tremendous, powerful effect. It's a fabulous idea. I'd love it to work. Um, but that's another example of black box technology, as, as is the meter. Um, Christopher Evans said, occasionally the veneer of science is superficially convincing. That thing looks convincing, especially when you have a Scientologist talking you through it and explaining what all the dials and levers and everything mean. Superficially convincing, but it's never necessary to scratch too deep before the true nature of the material reveals itself. And this is where it all came from. Uh, Aaron Hubbard, a very popular science fiction author back in the mainly 1940s, um, a couple of stories by him. Um, he wrote for both these, his magazine's name there, there. But he mainly wrote for a magazine called Astounding. Uh, Rene Lafayette was one of his students. And Astounding, the, the editor of Astounding, a guy called John W. Campbell, was an enthusiastic early supporter of Dianetics. But when he was commissioning stories for the magazine, he loved stories about scientific developments. And anything, fiction or facts, because it's something like a lot of science fiction mags had factual essays as well as, as the stories. Um, he would commission scientific stories and articles. And one of them in uh, May 1950, for all the 25 cents you could buy this, which had an article Dianetics, the evolution of the science. And it says at the top, you can just read, um, a fact article of genuine importance. See the editor's page. Um, I don't have the editor's page here, but John W. Campbell was very much in favour of it for about a year, and then he became disillusioned. Um, as did many other science fiction writers, people like A.E. Van Vogt, initially very enthusiastic, he set up his own dynamics workshop. Um, he later dropped out of it. Other people the same. Isaac Asimov, probably we all know uh, some of his work, he was one of the few people in the science fiction world who was not in the slightest attracted by Dianetics. And he described it. Dianetics, out of which Hubbard would make his fortune and gain his godhead, he called it gibberish. Um, that's Asimov's uh, viewpoint. Uh, at this point, I was going to um, go into one of the best-known science fictional areas of Scientology, which is the, the famous OT3 revelation about Zeno. But um, I've got a lot to get through and don't want to get too sidetracked. So if anybody's interested in that, I can come back to this in the Q&A. Um, it also means I can carry on without, if there's any Scientologists here without them uh, having to leave if they're not cleared up to that level. 
but it's, well, they would be interpreted. I don't want to do that to anybody. Um, so let's move on from that and look at L. Ron Hubbard himself, The Life of a Guru. Um, these booklets, about 10 or 15 years ago, they brought out over a dozen of these, the wrong books. And they're fascinating stuff. You know, uh, glossy, glossy magazines full of all sorts of you know, Ron's discoveries, um, his, his life, his. Basically, everything about him. They, they, they had these booklets, many of them up there. Um, Ron, the adventurer explorer, the humanitarian, the philosopher, the musician, the writer, the poet lyricist, the artist, the photographer, the yachtsman, the sea captain, in every one of these fields, he was absolutely at the top of that field. And he was brilliant, and he achieved everything, and good on him. And then they're fascinating. I've got about half a dozen of these myself. Um, they're fascinating eulogies to a great man. Uh, they'll also tell you about his fascinating, exciting, adventurous youth. Um, L. Ron Hubbard, he could ride horses at three and a half. He's made a blood brother of the Blackfoot Indians at six. He visited Hawaii, Japan, Hong Kong, Shanghai when he was 16. Great Wall of China, Temple of Palaces, the Forbidden City when he was 17. He, quote, studied with a lust in the line of royal magicians from the court of Kublai Khan. And, quote, he gained admittance to the fabled Tibetan lamasseries in the western hills of China. And much, much more. He had this phenomenal youth. And he packed enough into his youth for, for a dozen really, really adventurous people. Good on him. Um, it's, it's, it's all in these books and many others. And, uh, without necessarily questioning either his truthfulness about his own biography or the Church of Scientology's um, emphasis on his life story, his astonishing youth has a lot in common with the leaders of various other esoteric movements. Um, Madame Blavatsky, founder of the Theosophical Society, fascinating person. Um, a psychic, probably a fraudulent psychic, but a damn good psychic as well. And she was responsible for, for largely responsible for introducing ideas of Hinduism and Buddhism into Western religion and merging the two together in a way which is still being followed today by a lot of people. Um, and as of Madame Blavatsky came in all lots of today's New Age movements. Um, she too travelled to the Far East. She claimed to have studied with the secret masters in Tibet. Um, 1848 to 1858, she called the veiled time in her life. And it's very difficult to ver verify the various accounts of that period. But it's part of what I call the foundation myth of her movement, Theosophical Society. Georgie Gurdjieff, Gurdjieff, sorry, try saying that. Georgie Ivanovich Gurdjieff claims to study with the seekers of truth in the Caucasus and Central Asia. He also went to Egypt and Tibet, where he claimed to have studied under teachers of ancient wisdom. So there's a pattern. These two are just two of many, and L. Ron Hubbard as well. Um, there's a pattern. If you found an esoteric movement, you need to have this sort of background to get the authority for your teachings. Where do your teachings come from? They come from an old lama who I spent years studying with in Tibet. You can't get better than that. Um, 
Gurdjieff's biographer, who has been a follower of Gurdjieff for over 50 years, in his biography says, we are chastenly reliant on Gurdjieff's own four impressionistic accounts, which, in the nature of myth, are innocent of consistency, Aristotelian logic, and chronological discipline. <laughs> Good on him. Again, definition time. Um, I use the word myth to mean a story whose importance rests on the message it carries, the power within the, within the story, rather than whether or not it's historically factual. And all religions use stories like that, teaching stories. Um, Christianity has, has you know, the parables of Jesus. Um, it, in Sunday school, you, know, you sort of hear the Good Samaritan story, and you think of it as being a story that Jesus was involved in along with all the other stories of his life, but that was a parable, a teaching story that he told. And all religions are full of these. Um, mythic history, or ritual history, foundation myths. Religious movements need this sort of thing to get them started, to give them validity, to give them authority, to give them significance. The early lives of the founders, or where a movement got its authority from in the first place. Um, Freemasonry is full of ritual history. The problem comes when uh, speculative historians, shall we say, treat the ritual history as factual history. It was never intended to be by anybody. Ritual history, which is storytelling, it encompasses powerful imagery and powerful important ideas, teaching ideas. If you read stories, life stories of saints, medieval stories, hagiographies of saints, nobody was ever expected to believe that saints did all the incredibly fabulous things that those hagiographies say about them. I, I wonder whether we should apply that same rule to the founders of new religious movements, whether it's Blavatsky, Gurdjieff, or Elrond Hubbard. And the problem was, Hubbard told these stories that he seemed to believe them. Um, there's all sorts of tales of things like um, American Fiction Guild lunches where the, the various writers there would try to outdo each other with the stories, the, the tall stories they told about their exploits. And nobody ever really believed these stories except Hubbard seemed to believe his own stories. I expected other people to believe them as well. Um, he would come out with well, the things that we, we looked at, what he was doing when he was three and a half riding horses, or six or seven or fifteen. Um, one friend spent an evening with him and eventually told Hubbard that he must be 84 years old. This was back in the 1940s when Hubbard was in his 30s. And Hubbard said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you were in the Marines for seven years. You were a civil engineer for six years. You spent four years in Brazil, three in Africa. You barnstormed with your own flying circus for six years. I just added them all up and it comes to 84. <laughs> Anybody else would burst out laughing having been found out. Hubbard apparently blew his top. Somebody doubting his, his words of wisdom about his own life. And the church is very protective of the life story of Hubbard. If you challenge them on any point whatsoever, including his, his military record in World War II, they will flood you with information um, proving that they're right and you're wrong. I'm using the word proving very, very loosely. Um, one other little thing about um, 
Aaron Hubbard's, shall we say, mythological life that he has in common with George King of the Ethereum Society and Gerald Gardner, the founder of Wicca. Um, and in fact, the current leader of the Ethereum Society, um, I spoke to a guy called Richard Lawrence. All three of them claimed doctorates which they didn't have, or which they did have, but the doctorates weren't worth anything. You, know, you, you can buy a doctorate for about $400 in the States, if you know where to go. And Herbert got his from um, Sequoia University. This is a little, one small building in Los Angeles, um, an unaccredited degree mill, and it was eventually shut down by a court order in 1984. So that's where Herbert got his. I think he probably did do a course there. I think he probably wrote an essay or two. And he probably paid them $200 or $400, and they gave him a doctorate. Now, those of us who've done it the hard way get pretty annoyed by this. <laughs> um, somebody else, just to add to that list. I will call him Reverend Ian Paisley. I will not call him Dr. Ian Paisley, because his doctorates, both his original doctorate and his honorary doctorate, he has two, were both given to him by... Bible colleges in the States, which at the time were not accredited to issue degrees, which everybody else, the whole the world agrees is a worthwhile degree. So um, Dr. Ian Paisley, he ain't. <coughs> I, want to, I want to just look at a few more of the, the resemblances between Church of Scientology and esoteric movements in general. And this is a chart. There are many, many different versions of this chart. It's quite a complicated version um, of the bridge to total freedom. This is the, what I call spiritual career path <coughs> that the Scientologists will follow. You come in right about the bottom and you take a whole number of courses and eventually you work your way up with a lot of auditing, a lot of Dianetic sessions until you reach clear. When you go clear, you become Superman, you, you get all the benefits that um, I've mentioned. And then you carry on from clear. Why do you carry on after clear? What's your Superman? What is it beyond that? Well, a cynic might say, far, far be it you know, to suggest this, but it's possible. Originally, clear was the pinnacle. It was the top of the ladder. That's what you aimed for. You got to clear. Wow, you've done it. You're Superman. Then Scientology found that they've got hundreds of people at Clear. Where do you go next? There's got to be something else to aim for. So Hubbard created a whole load of what were called operating phasen levels. The phasen in Scientology is your, the equivalent of your soul or spirit. It's the inner person, the, the being that is you, that your body is just a shell around. So the phasen is the the inner you, an operating face and somebody above clear who gets a whole load of uh, very, very major additional powers beyond clear through doing various courses. Just to look at a few of these words, um, I mentioned occult societies earlier. Occult simply means hidden. Um, there are people who hear the word occult and immediately think it must be diabolical or demonic simply means hidden. And astronomers use the word occult, the same as occluded, when they talk about a planet or a star being covered up by another one. You know, a planet going in front of another planet, hiding it. 
and it was hidden, it's occulted. Um, an esoteric movement is for the initiated. It's not the difference between an esoteric movement and, say, uh, Church of England is you can go into Church of England and have all the teachings presented to you. You don't have to be specially vetted before you go into a church. Uh, you can go into any church in the land and there's no problem with that and you know what all the teachings are. An esoteric movement, um, only the initiated are allowed in. It has secret teachings. It has graduated teachings following up that spiritual career path. And it's for just a select small number. Now, although Scientology used to talk about clearing the planet, getting everybody in the world clear, uh, that's a wonderful dream they had back in the 60s. I think they've gone a bit quiet about that in, in recent years. Um, Scientology, like other um, esoteric movements, is very much for a small group of people, the people who have the truth. And the rest of the world... Um, they actually have some fairly unpleasant words for people like us who aren't Scientologists. Um, it's also a Gnostic movement, I think. Gnostic religions are all to do with knowledge, secret knowledge. And in most Gnostic movements, it's knowledge of God. And it's a personal interaction with God without having to have a priest there. Um, but the, the knowledge in a Gnostic religion is something which is initially hidden and you learn it. You pick it up individually on your own and get that relationship, that secret knowledge. It's not for the many. It's only for the few. Um, I mentioned the Thetan, the, the inner soul. Um, a lot of esoteric movements call it the Christ spark. And it's very much, it's a huge part of Scientology. The Thetan is you. The body is just a shell around you. You will have other bodies in future lives, but the fatum will continue. <coughs> it's also a privatised religion. Again, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, you go into a church or a synagogue or a temple or a mosque with a whole load of other people to worship God or do whatever else you're doing, the ceremonies, the rituals, together with a bunch of other people. Esoteric movements tend to be either small group religions, just three or four or a couple of dozen people together, or on your own. A lot of Scientologists' work is done either on your own or with one other person. So a privatised religion rather than um, a great social religion. Other correspondences. That's the Scientology cross. There's some resemblance, not entirely, but some, to that, which is the Rosicrucian cross, specifically from the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and the OTO, the Ordo Templi Orientis. Uh, there are similarities between them. Hubbard was a member of um, an American Rosicrucian group called Amok, the ancient and mystical order of the Rosicrucians, in 1940. And he actually passed the first two degrees. Again, Rosicrucian groups and the Golden Dawn, and the OTO, and many other esoteric societies, they have these levels. You've got to rise up slowly, level by level, grade by grade. And Hubbard took the first two levels, the first two initiations, in Amok, the Rosicrucian Society, uh, back in 1940. 
And then a couple of other things. He, he told a friend that he'd written the Dianetics book in three weeks with automatic writing. Um, automatic writing isn't something I've studied myself much. Chris, do you know much about it? A little bit. A little bit. You go into a form of trance in some way and you just let your hand write. And what comes out of it is sometimes said to be quite wonderful, amazing stuff. There are, there are quite a few spiritual texts which have been written in that way. And Herbert told somebody he'd written the Dianetics book in that way. Um, the focus on past lives, again, very much a big thing in esoteric movements. You had lives before this one, and you have lives after this one. It's massively important in the Church of Scientology. Um, each life that you have, if you're if you're a full-time employee, if you're a member of the Sea Org, the Sea Organization, which is the sort of central priesthood in a way of the Church of Scientology, you sign a billion-year contract because you're signing up not just for this life but all the lives in the future. Uh, that's that's real dedication. Uh, you've got to admire that. I, I'm not knocking it. I should have said at the beginning, you know, I, I'm not setting out to, to attack and to mock Scientology. Um, some, some of the things that it says about itself, you might want to take in that way. But you've got to admire the dedication of people um, devoting themselves to this. Um, Hubbard also described, in the 1950s, described Scientology as a New Age religion. In several articles, he called it a New Age religion. Again, esoteric. But in a poem in 1955, The Hymn of Asia, he refers to himself as the Maitreya. And the Maitreya, um, I mentioned Madame Blavatsky earlier, her Theosophical Society brought the idea of the, the Maitreya into the Western consciousness. The Maitreya is the coming Messiah, the one whether it's in Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, there's nearly always in Christianity it's Christ returning. In nearly all of them, there's somebody going to be coming to earth from beyond, um, a Messiah figure, an avatar of the Godhead. And Elvon Hubbard <laughs> described himself in that way. Perhaps his most controversial um, dealings with another esoteric society was with this guy, Alistair Crowley. The Great Beast 666. Briefly a member of uh, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn until they chucked him out. He joined the Ordo Templi Orientis. He then took it over and became its leader. Uh, he founded various other esoteric societies. He's very heavily into sex magic. And that's quite important what's about to come up. Um, he and Hubbard never met. But Hubbard, in a lecture, Hubbard described Crowley as my very good friend, obviously giving him some praise. Uh, Hubbard had read some of Crowley's works. He said that Crowley's writing on magic was a trifle wild in spots, but it's a fascinating work in itself. And um, he said that Crowley's book of the law, that Crowley had picked a level of religious worship which was very interesting. So he, he was very familiar with Crowley's work and seemed to think quite highly of it. Now, again, I've been told by top Scientologists that when, Crowley, when, when Hubbard said things like this about Crowley, 
he was clearly being facetious. Well, the lecture where he mentioned Crowley is my very good friend and talked about his work being fascinating. Um, Hubbard actually went on to say, now a magician, getting back to cause and effect and Alastair's work after Crowley, a magician postulates what his goal will be before he starts to accomplish what he is doing. So you have a, a goal, you aim towards it. Hubbard was clearly very favourable towards Crowley, whatever the Church of Scientology might say. I might add here, he recommended that people read the Crowley. Thank you. In one of the lectures. Now, in 1945-6, so that should say Pasadena, not Pasadena. What happens then? Oh, the A has dropped down. Um, 1945-6 Hubbard was staying in a big rooming house owned by Jack Parsons in Pasadena um, suburb of, of Los Angeles Jack Parsons was a rocket scientist um, hugely important hugely influential in uh, that work for the American government and he was also the acting head of the OTO the Ordo Templi Orientis which was uh, Alistair Crowley's organisation in Los Angeles. A lot of science fiction authors hung around there, a lot of other rocket scientists, and a lot of occultists, members of the OTO. And Hubbard stayed there the end of 45, beginning of 46. Hubbard and Jack Parsons, I'm going by Jack Parsons' own account here. Church of Scientology will say this is complete rubbish, but Parsons himself said. He and L. Ron Hubbard worked on various sex magic rituals together to call up a magical person. And what they were looking for was effectively this lady, Marjorie Cameron. They called her up. She then came along to the house, started staying there, fell in love with and eventually married Jack Parsons. Um, and then in early '46. Jack Parsons and Marjorie Cameron were doing um, sex magic together. And Elron Hubbard, let's get the phrasing this correct. Um, he was acting as, quote, the clairvoyant seer describing the happenings on the astral plane while Parsons and Marjorie Cameron were doing sex magic. Um, the church got very upset by this story. They're very, very sensitive about it. And what they will say is that Hubbard was working as an undercover agent for the US Navy to break up black magic in America. Um, in support of that, they say that, uh, they, they quote an article from Sunday Times from 1969, which says, L. Ron Hubbard was still an officer of the US Navy. Because he is well known as a writer and a philosopher and had friends among the physicists, he was sent in to handle the situation. He went to live at the house and investigated the black magic rights and the general situation and found them very bad. That's not Sunday Times language. That's Church of Scientology language. They, they demanded an apology from Sunday Times for a story they'd written and they gave them a statement to print. And that was a statement by the Church of Scientology published by Sunday Times, which Scientology now quotes as evidence for their version of events. Slightly circular. 
they do tend, when they refute, um, or attempt to refute theories <coughs> about um, Aaron Hubbard's early life, they tend to make a lot of assertions rather than actually provide evidence, or the evidence they provide doesn't really hold a lot of water. Um, moving on fairly rapidly. I mentioned brainwashing very early on in the beginning. Um, Church of Scientology is accused of brainwashing its members, as are many other new religious movements, from the Hare Krishnas, Namunis, many others. Um, it's known by various other names, mind control, coercive persuasion, whatever. And it's supposed to be how cults, that's a pejorative term, how they recruit members and then how they hang on to them. Um, just very briefly, I want to look at what brainwashing actually is. Does it work? Does it even exist? That's the definition of brainwashing by a journalist in 1950. The intent is to change your mind radically so it only becomes a living puppet, a human robot, without the atrocity being visible from the outside. The aim is to create a mechanism of flesh and blood with new beliefs and new thought processes inserted into a captive body. Now, that's a journalist's rather sensationalist description of brainwashing. But this is also a lot of people who are anti-cult, um, professionally anti-cultists, will say cults or new religious movements, including Scientology, are doing to attract and to hold on to members. The whole idea of brainwashing came about in the Korean War in 1950. There were certain captured American soldiers who apparently went over to the Chinese communist side and started believing in, or saying they believed in, communist uh, teachings. Um, this was hugely blown up. Um, a psychologist called Robert J. Lifton wrote about it, but he didn't use the term brainwashing. Brainwashing came from this, this journalist. Um, in actuality, only about one in 50 of these captured soldiers who were tortured, they were imprisoned, they were coerced, still only about one in 50 made statements in favour of Chinese communism. The other 49 out of 50 didn't. So it didn't really work, even under those extreme conditions. Um, brainwashing, according to social scientists, quite a different thing. It necessarily involves several things. Incarceration, forcible confinement, physical maltreatment against members, uninformed consent, an intense indoctrination program, and personal confessions of past sins. If you've got all of those in a very coercive environment, then you might be able to call it brainwashing. Most people when, when they join a new religious movement aren't subjected to all of that. Um, term brainwashing isn't the right term to use. But if brainwashing doesn't work, I, 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 I can, instead of running out of time, I can talk more about brainwashing in the Q&A if you like. Uh, why do people join new religions? Well, largely because they're looking for answers. And because they're looking for friends as well. And a new religion can be very attractive. It can present itself in a persuasive, attractive way. It might give you incomplete or deceptive information about itself. That's not saying brainwashing. It's just a way of encouraging people to join. Uh, so people join movements because, generally, because they want to join them. Um, particularly esoteric movements. People go from one to another to another. 
Most of the friends I know in various esoteric movements and pagan movements had belonged to half a dozen different movements before where they are today. Because they try something, it works for a while, then it doesn't quite work, so they try something else until they end up with one that they feel really comfortable with. When people do that with Scientology, with the Hare Krishnas, with Rajneesh, with a whole load of other new religions. That's why you join, for some of the reasons. Why stay? Because quite often, once you've been in a movement for a while, you can start finding things that aren't too good about it. So why on earth do you stay rather than leave? Um, very quickly, a number of reasons, that are far more than this, but societal condition. You're sort of, the repetition, the habits of being there encourages you in itself to stay. It's not brainwashing, it's just you're socialised into remaining a member because it's become your life. Uh, many movements have an us and them mentality. We have the truth, they are the great unwashed. So if you're one of us, you've got the truth. You don't want to lose that truth. Uh, especially in Christian movements, you don't want to leave the movement and risk losing your salvation. So some people say for simply for that reason. Um, a lot of movements like Scientology, you invest a massive amount of time and effort, study and money, in the case of Scientology, their courses are very expensive, um, into being a member. So you don't want to just throw this all away and leave, and just wash your hands off and leave. Um, your entire social life might be bound up in the movement, all your friends might be there. Especially if you're living in a, in a community, if you're living within the religion rather than in the outer world. You might have left all your outside friends outside, you no longer see them. So if you leave, you don't have a house, you don't have a job, you don't have skills, you don't have friends, where are you going to go? The exit costs of leaving a new religion can be really quite powerful. And that can be why a lot of people stay beyond the point when they start thinking they might want to leave. Why are people so bitter when they leave sects and cults, new religious movements? Um, in fact, most of them aren't. The vast majority of people I know who've been members of Scientology or the Hare Krishnas or any other movement aren't bitter in the slightest. They were in it for a few months or a year or two back then in the past. Then they moved on and they did something else. It's part of their life. It's part of what they've done. And why should they be bitter about it? They've learned this, they've learned that, this bit went wrong, fair enough. It's just simply part of growing up, part of, part of your life. In the same way as um, I call it the end of a relationship when you leave a, a religion. Most of us, when we finish a relationship and move on to another one, don't feel full of bit bitterness and anger and hatred to our past partner. It's just you know, something in our past, a person in our past, we've now moved on to the next person. You can feel bitter if things are really wrong, and that's something which anti-cause organisations exploit, and they really build on bitterness. They get people angry at the amount of time and money and energy they've invested into a movement. Um, and then they get people to look at the, the beliefs and the practices that they, they upheld when they were members. Did you really believe so-and-so? Did you really do so-and-so? You must have been mad. And no, you won't. It's just at the time you actually believed this. Why not? People believe all sorts of things. Uh, but if somebody can say to you, well, surely you can't believe that. Maybe you were brainwashed. It's a lot easier to say, okay, I was brainwashed. 
rather than you know, what would seem stupid, blame somebody else for the fact that you spent five years as a member of a religion. It must be somebody else's fault. None of us wants to take the blame for ourselves. It's a blame culture. Therefore, I must be very much. Um, that's a hugely short summary. Uh, that could be an hour-long lecture in itself very easily. But um, just of the whole concept of brainwashing and why I don't think brainwashing has any validity whatsoever. There are all sorts of other things which societal conditions and so on which cause people to join and to stay in movements. The last thing I want to look at very, very quickly is membership. Church of Scientology generally claims 10 million members. Um, if you hear them mentioned in a news story, read a story in the papers, Church of Scientology has 10 million members worldwide, blah, blah, blah. Um, do they actually have 10 million worldwide? For some years they claimed um, 120,000. Before 120,000. Um, a lot of religions, not just Scientology, boost up their membership figures just to show that they, they're bigger and better than people might otherwise think. You boost up your membership, you look bigger, you look more important. So 10 million members worldwide, 120,000 members in Britain is what they've claimed for quite a long time. Unfortunately, um, census results don't bear that out. The census 10 years ago, 2001, had a voluntary question asking what your religion was. And again, this year, those of us who did the census against a voluntary question, um, how many people do you think said that there are Scientologists in Britain? 120,000? Or, in fact, 1,781? <laughs> uh, very similar figures in Australia, 2,000. Canada, 1,500. New Zealand, only 282. Very, very few. Why so few? And, yeah, is there only that number in England, Wales, and Australia? Where are the rest of the 10 million worldwide? Uh, are they all in America, in, in, in the home place of, of Scientology? Um, well, probably not. There's a major survey, the American Religious Identification Survey, and in the same year, in 2001, it's estimated that there are just 55,000 Scientologists in the United States of America. Um, a bit smaller than 10 million. So we need to know, um, if they're claiming 10 million members, what do they mean by member of, of their religion? Um, what do you mean by, say, a member of the Church of England? Um, is it everybody who's been baptised in, into the Church of England? Does that make you a member? Or is it, if you're in hospital, you've got to fill in the form saying what your religion is, and you think, well, I'm not a Jew, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not a Hindu, I'm not a Scientologist... I'll put down C of E. That's what most people do. Um, or as a member of, of the C of E, is it somebody who, who goes to Eastern Christmas Communion? Or is it a more realistic number, perhaps, the regular attendance at church on Sunday morning? I think that's probably a more sensible measure of members, active members of the C of E, Church of England. The same applies to any religion, if they give membership figures, ask what they mean by that membership figure. And in the case of the Church of Scientology, the church president, Haber Yinch, 
back in 1992, let's slip in the radio programme what they mean by a member of the Church of Scientology. It's anybody who has ever done even one single introductory course or one single auditing session, dynamic session, over the last 50 years since the church was founded. If you've done that, you're a member. I could have easily been a member myself. I have friends with Scientologists. I've gone to you know, um, East Grinstead to their headquarters in Britain. I could easily have done a dynamic session. I would then be counted as being a member. Uh, in fact, I haven't. I'm not. Um, I know a lot of people have. Um, that's hardly membership, but that's, that's how they build up their part of how they build up their uh, 10 million membership. Um, what do we have next? Oh, yes. <laughs> 10 million. <laughs> 50,000. <laughs> because the, um, the American Religious Identification Survey um, between 2001 and 2008 showed a drop from 55,000 to 25,000 members in America. Um, a leading ex-Scientologist, a, a lot of members are leaving the church now, in fact, in droves, senior members. I mentioned Mike Rinder earlier, who's the head of PR for the whole church. The head of publicity for Scientology, um, a guy called Jefferson Hawkins, who's recently written a book called Counterfeit Dreams. Uh, he left about five years ago. And he, he was responsible for all books like this. Um, very, very influential guy in the church. And he left, he reckons that there are between 25,000 and 40,000 members worldwide. And he is somebody who's in there very hard. So that's a measure of um, how big the Church of Scientology is. One last thing to just finish with. Um, Scientology is very, very good at PR. Yes, they get a lot of negative PR, but it's something they've worked on for a long time. Um, and they, they like to manipulate the media. They have people like Travolta and Cruz, who they wheel out as, the, as celebrity members. And five years ago, they opened a new church in London. And they let it be known that possibly, just possibly, John Travolta and Tom Cruise might be coming along to the opening of this new church. So TV news was there in droves. I don't know how many interviews I did on, on, on Sky and BBC News about this. Um, and in the end, Travolta and Cruz didn't turn up. Nobody really famous turned up. And I spoke to um, UK head of PR, Graham Wilson, afterwards, and I said, um, but you know, they weren't there. All the media attention you got because they thought that um, Tom Cruise and, and John Travolta would be coming. And they didn't come. And Graham said to me, we never said they would be there. That was just media speculation. Yeah, it was media speculation which they had engineered and they had promulgated. And they had done nothing to diminish in any way. So when I wrote an article about this uh, for actually the Church Times newspaper, uh, they illustrated this in this way. How about that thing? You travel 15 light years to a trip to Scientology Convention and Tom Cruise doesn't show up. That's about to sum it up. Thanks very much.